just talked about uh, a prayer card that we have, and uh, we often try to make prayer very much not just the give it lip service of the church, but to make it part of the engine that drives uh, what we do. The question, though, when we think about prayer is what kind of things do we usually pray for? Not what, what kind of things should we pray for, not so much what we would like to pray for, but when the rubber meets the road, if we were to, to, to keep a log and a journal of the, the, the prayer requests that we offer, whether together and uh, as a church or individually in the prayer closet, as it were, what kind of things would be showing up there? Just based on anecdotal evidence, based upon what I hear, what I see, what I observe, even have my own life, I, I would say probably at least two-thirds of the prayer requests that we uh, offer to God deal with things like health and safety and material prosperity. In fact, some people uh, that I've talked to, other pastors that I asked, they, they would put that as much as 80% of our prayer requests deal with those things. But don't get me wrong as we begin. There's nothing wrong to pray for those things. Uh, even as we pray for friends and loved ones to be healed, to be safe as they travel, all of those things are good because God, I believe, uh, desires us and takes delight when we give all of our life over to him in prayer. The question is, though, should those kinds of requests be the kinds of requests that dominate our prayer life? Two-thirds, 80% is a huge chunk of the things that we are praying for. How would we know? If those things should be the things that dominate our prayer life. If they shouldn't, how would we know how to change our prayer life? What should we be praying for? Well, the easiest answer to all those questions is simply this. Look to the Bible. Uh, Look to the Bible. What do the things that the godly people in the scriptures pray for? They're not just there as historical reference. They're not just there to tell us what happened. They are there to be examples for us as well. And so, especially in this new covenant era under Christ, we would look to the prayers of Christ himself or his apostles. And we should ask ourselves, what kind of things did they pray for? What, What were the kind of burning concerns, the issues they had in their mind that they wanted to bring before God. This morning we see such an example of praying in Colossians 1. Uh, We, of course, a few weeks ago began the series. We're moving our way through the book of Colossians, and we continue that series this morning, and we we come to uh, verse 9, and what we see here is Paul telling them in the letter straight out, look, uh, Colossian believers, this is what I'm praying for you. When I think of you, whenever I, whenever I think of you, you come to mind and you are on my prayer list, in my prayers, here's what I'm praying that God would do in your life. And, and therefore, I think this prayer serves as an example to us, not just what we should be praying for other Christians, but what we should be praying for ourselves as well. So let's look to these verses and see what exactly it is that Paul is praying, uh, was praying for the Colossians and what we should be praying today. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May God bless the reading of his word. 
Last week we looked at the previous verses, verses 3 through 8, and there we saw that Paul did not say so much, this is what I'm actively praying for you about, but rather, when I think of you, this is what I thank God for, for what he is already doing in your life. So verses 3 through 8 was him saying, this is what I see God has already done and what he continues to do, and so therefore, this is what I thank God for. But now... He moves on and he says, now in light of what I was thankful for, now here's what I continually am praying for. That's what we see in verse 9. It has the words, and so. Other translations have, for this reason. The point is, verses 9 through 14 are linked to verses 3 through 8. What are we to take away from that? Well, I think that we should take away at least this. Just because someone looks like they're doing well spiritually, just because it looks like someone is blessed, that doesn't mean we stop praying for them. We don't look at someone uh, who is doing well and is growing and we see them sharing their faith and we say, man, God, we're so thankful for them. And we leave it. Paul says, I am thankful for you, but now I'm going to continue to pray for you. Why? Well, because on one level... Uh, even the best of men are men at best, and we continually need God to be at work in our lives. Apparent blessing doesn't mean that we just stop praying. Furthermore, verses 9 through 14 show us that there are some things that should be asked for over and over and over. What does Paul say? He says, from the day that we heard of you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking. This is not just a one-off prayer that Paul thought, this is kind of nice. This is what, I'll pray this for him today, and I'll let them know. This is the kind of thing that Paul is continually, regularly praying for them. And therefore, I think it's important that we understand that our prayer life should not be driven just by emergencies. Well, you know what? He, he's not doing well. You know, we, we, should, we should pray for him. That's good. Do that. But continually pray positively for people as well. Not least of which yourself, but especially others in the family of God. Be actively praying that God sustain one another in some of the, just the basics of the faith. Pray that people uh, fight temptation to sin. That, that marriages are strong and healthy. That parents lovingly train up their children. I mean, just, just the, the rudimentaries of living out the Christian faith should be prayed for again and again and again for one another as we seek God to be at work in our lives. Well, Paul here says, here is something else that he prays continually for the Colossians. And therefore, I think it is something that we should also be praying for one another. And if we had to summarize it, I would say simply this. Paul is praying that they live in light of the gospel. They have, he has, he's not been there, but he has heard of them. And he knows they have heard the gospel message. They have believed. They have trusted Christ as their Savior. And therefore, he prays that they continue to live in light of that gospel message they have heard. And so therefore, that's what we want to be praying for ourselves this morning. We want to understand exactly what Paul is praying for them. We want to pray and understand how our lives should be affected by the gospel um, so that we can ultimately, uh, in Paul's words, live a life worthy of the Lord. So three things we want to see this morning that describe the kind of life we are praying for, understanding uh, not only what should be real in our life, but what we should be asking God to do. The first thing is, is this, we need to understand that gospel living begins with knowing the will of God. Gospel living, a life lived in light of the gospel, it begins with knowing the will of God. What does Paul say right at the beginning of verse 9? From the day we heard, we had not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his 
will. Uh, the beginning there from the day we heard, if you've not been here with the rest of the series, it helps remind us that uh, just the historical setting is such that Paul has never met the Colossians before. He planted a lot of churches. This is not one that he planted. We read within the letter, it was Epaphras who was a key instrument in bringing the gospel back to his home city of Colossae. He is the one who uh, has been preaching Christ. He is the one that God has used to start this church. Nevertheless, Paul says, since he heard that there was work going on in that city, he has been praying for them. And his prayer begins with this. He has asked God that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, oftentimes we talk about knowing God's will, don't we? We say we're we're seeking God's will in in this matter. And I want you to pray that I would know God's will. And we have that phrase that is very much a part of not just Christian vocabulary, but I think the desire of our heart. We often want to know what would God have me do in any given situation. And that's that's not a bad thing to do. But normally, normally the focus is, is a little too narrow. We ask things like, I want to know God's will. Uh, to know which job to take, whom I should marry, whether or not to go on this mission trip. And again, those those things are not bad things to pray for. Uh, Like we said before, God deserves to be Lord over every sphere of our life. The problem is when Paul talks about knowing the will of God, it's not just those kind of punctiliar decisions that he has in mind. It is much more a pervasive knowledge that he is talking about. Ultimately, the Bible makes it clear that God's will does not have to do so much with geography as much as it does morality. In other words, God's will scripturally, the emphasis is not just on the who, the where, the what, but on the what is happening in your life spiritually. Are you growing? What does your life look like? What is your character? And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that uh, God's will in the ultimate sense is that we be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I think uh, author John White is surely right when he says this. Whether the process of making what God wants of you involves travel, money, joy, pain, or whatever, is secondary. His goal is to make you holy. And the kind of guidance he will give you will reflect this. Now, in some sense, can I just say that is completely liberating? It's absolutely completely, so, so like when I, when I was thinking about where to go to college, there could have been 10 great Christian colleges that would have given me a good education, helped prepare me for ministry, and, and I could have wrestled and sweated and prayed and said, oh my goodness, but, but where, where is the perfect one? Where does God want me to go? Well, to be honest, in some sense, I don't have to ask that question. The question I should be asking is, if I go to school A, is it going to help me look more like Christ? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, I go to school A. End of decision-making process. Now, there could be other things, couldn't there? How close is it to a good church? How close is it to a family? How much does it cost? There are other questions to be involved. But my point is, sometimes we, we, we trip ourselves up. Should I read this book on parenting or this book on parenting? Uh, should I marry this person or this person? To some degree, don't wig out over those questions. The question that we should be asking is, is this going to make me look more like Christ? Is it going to hinder me looking more like Christ? And that's the, that's the general answer. 
And then you pray. What I always do is kind of the, 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 the kind of trap door because sometimes I'm sinful and I'm an idiot and I can't see clearly and make a bad decision. I say, and God, if I'm making the wrong decision, then smack me on the head and, and move me out of that. Make it, make sure it doesn't happen. Like a high view of God's providence. You know, he's not just out there, you know, uh, clipping his toenails, uninterested in what's going on. He is intimately involved in life. Back when we looked at Esther and Ruth and so many other books, we saw that. And so I want to say, if I'm moving towards this decision because I think it's right and it's not right, slam the door in my face, uh, pull the wheels out from under me, don't let me go there. Don't let me make the wrong decision. But the Bible, my point is, is so much more concerned with who we are rather than the particulars of what we do. And that is exactly what Paul has in mind here. Not so, he's talking about them knowing not so much the individual decisions they are to make, but rather a deep understanding of God and his ways that encompasses all of life, all of their view of the world, so that in the individual decisions, they will be godly and live a godly life. It's more than just what I will eat for breakfast It's about how I will live according to God's plans and purposes as opposed to my own or the world's. That's what Paul is praying for when he prays that Colossians would be filled by God with a knowledge of his will. And he tells us this knowledge consists of two things. It is is the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, on one level, that means this, that knowledge of God's will is about more than just doctrine. You can read the finest theology textbooks in the world and still not know the knowledge of God's will for your life. It it, it can happen. Now, now let me say, I'm not opposed to doctrine, and I think you know that about me, right? Uh, Just by uh, the books that are on my shelf. My point is, it's not just about doctrine, but at the same time, it's not anything less than doctrine and theology, and the teaching of the Bible. But it's also going to be more than that. I mean, doesn't James say, very famously, we call all the time, you know, even the demons believe that God is one. You know, even the demons have a right theology at some point. They have understanding this is, this is who God is. But what happens? It doesn't affect how they live. It, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not moved from just kind of intellectual, I agree, that's reality, to now this is going to affect how I think and feel and love and and take delight in all those things. And Paul says, knowing God's will means knowing, yes, right theology, but also applying it to our lives in right ways and in how we live. That's the essence of spiritual wisdom and understanding. Biblically, wisdom is not just knowing facts. It's about knowing how to navigate life. It's knowledge applied to real life. So for Paul... What he, is, what he is wanting us to understand, what he's wanting the Colossians to understand, is to take what we know of God and his ways, to understand them, and to begin working that out, because we've understood it so well, to be able to work that out in any situation that comes up in our lives. The goal is that the Colossians are not going to be transformed by and measured by and shaped by the values and the norms and the sins of the culture around them, but rather it is going to be God's will in the broadest sense, the deepest sense, God's plan and purposes for humanity as revealed in Jesus Christ, that that reality will begin to shape and conform them and their desires. Now, where is Paul getting this from? Why does he see this as so important? Well, I mean, to be honest, to some degree, it's about the situation in Colossae. But I think more than that, too, I think Paul, because he's already told us in Romans 8 that 
our goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ? I think it's because he realizes that's how Christ lived, therefore that's how his people should live. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 11? It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about who the Christ would be and how he would serve. Listen to how Isaiah describes the ministry of Jesus there. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the kind of spirit that was on Christ during his earthly life and ministry. God's own spirit of wisdom and knowledge that that led him to a fear of the Lord. And Paul is saying, I think, that's the kind of life that we should have as God's people as well. And I think that that's good because if that's what Paul means, it's encouraging for us. Because if we're going to try to live up to the expectations Paul here has for us as Christians, guess what he's saying? The same spirit that came upon Christ and empowered him for ministry in his humanity, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is the same spirit that God gives to you, O Christian brother and sister. Therefore, the same spirit of, of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is ours, is ours. The knowledge of God's will, therefore, and the spiritual wisdom and understanding that Paul's pray for is not some far-off goal. It's not some idealistic thing. Like, yeah, maybe someday we'll get to it. Because we have the Spirit of God, it can be a present reality. In fact, it should be a continual growth curve as we more and more understand with all spiritual wisdom and understanding the knowledge of the will of God. Practically speaking, though, how does this come to us? How is it that we grow in wisdom and understanding? Well, first of all, I think we just follow Paul's example and we pray for it, right? When he prayed, this would be true in the life of the Colossians, we should pray that for ourselves and for one another as well. So literally, maybe once a month or whatever it is, I think you, you, you crack open Colossians 1 and you begin praying Paul's very words to God and say, may that be true of us, may that be true of my, of my, 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 my friends, my family, but may that be true of my church family as well. We literally take that and pray for us. But beyond that then, not just asking God to make it happen, sometimes God just, metaphorically speaking, snatches fingers and things happen, right? Let there be light. He speaks, there's light, right? But very often, God uses means to accomplish his purpose. So if you ask God, give me an understanding of your will, give me an understanding of your will, give me an understanding of your will, do you think he's just going by divine fiat to put that in your brain? Well, he might. He might. You know, the Bible consistently from beginning to end says the Spirit moves where the Word of God is proclaimed. And therefore, what, what better thing could we do than to pick up God's Word and read it? I mean, that ultimately is what the Spirit is going to use most quickly, most pervasively, most easily develop an understanding of God's will in our minds as we take in the Word of God. Recent surveys reveal that 9 out of 10 American homes have a Bible in them. Think about that. Nine out of ten American homes have a Bible in them. On the surface, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? My question is, how come the country's the way it is if nine out of ten families have a Bible in it? The answer is they don't read it. They don't read it. it, it it's sitting there as a family heirloom or as something, a gift, and it never gets off the shelf. And if you were to open it, the spine would have that, you know, you open a book and you hear that, and it happens the first time you open a, a hardcover. I think it's exactly what you would hear. You'd have the pages all stuck together and you'd be fumbling like that to try and open it up. And when people do read it, how do people often approach the Bible? 
Very often they hand out like a Ouija board or a tarot deck or that little slip of paper that comes out of a fortune cookie uh, that some of us love and some of us hate. I'm on the loving. I love the taste of fortune cookies. Other people don't. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I'd share. The, the point is, some people just pick out a verse of the Bible completely devoid of the context in which it's written. They don't systematically read into the Bible. They just kind of say, uh, you know, da 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 boop. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I'll take that away today as my word of wisdom, as if the Bible is some kind of I Ching or, or whatever. It doesn't work that way. It, it doesn't work that way. And the sad reality is there are some people who claim to be Christians that read the Bible that way. Uh, just, in the, you know, I tend, I have enough... Uh, it, things going on in my life, enough plates spinning in the air, enough hats I'm trying to figure out which one I'm wearing at a given time. I, I tend not to really care what's going on in strangers' lives. But sometimes you're held captive. You're sitting in the coffee shop, trying to mind your own business, do your work, and someone behind you is talking very loud. You know, and unless you put the earbuds in and blast yourself out with, you know, listening to, to Lecrae or something, you're going to hear what's going on behind you. Or you're standing in this very long checkout, you know. You look like people are moving quickly in the line, and you're thinking, that's what I want to get in. And as soon as you do, it's like dead stop. And suddenly you're not moving, and like everybody else is going around you. And you, you're listening to people. And I don't know how many times I've been in a situation, I'm listening to Christians talk. I assume they're Christians. They're talking about Jesus, and they're talking about going to church. I think at least in their mind that, that they're Christians. And they, talk, they start talking about the problems they have and decisions they've got to make. And what you hear is, a, is this kind of random mishmash process of complete gobbledygook about how they're going to decide what they're going to do. It starts with, well, this is what my friend said. And this is what my, 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 my niece did in her life. And maybe there's a Bible verse in there. Maybe a pastor said something. But more often than not, they're quoting song verses. Do you know how many times I've heard people say in a decision-making process in relationships, well, you know what they say. If you really love the person, you let them go. And if they're yours, they'll come back. What? Where, where is that in the Bible? Where is that written in stone? And so what happens is you find people just kind of bouncing around through life like a ball in a pinball machine, having no idea what's going on, or even how to know how God would have them to live, though they desperately want to know. Why? Simply this, they haven't read the book. They haven't read the book. They've not had their mind reformatted like a new computer's hard drive, like Paul says in Romans 12. He says the, the, the way you come to increase and understand the will of God is by again and again and again and again overriding the sinful selfishness, the sinful thinking, the sinful desires of our own heart with the, with the beauty and the glory and the truth of God's Word as we read over and over and over again. That's how the Spirit begins to work in our life and we come to a greater knowledge of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But understand this, that, that knowledge is not an end in and of itself. This is the second thing that we see about what it means to live a life marked by the gospel. Gospel living means walking worthy of God. Gospel living doesn't just begin with understanding the will of God, but it also means walking worthy of God. Paul says, I want you to be filled with a knowledge of God. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, of course, in biblical imagery and the cultural language of the first century, and even today, we in part understand this, a person's walk doesn't have actually to do with how they walk. You know, it's not whether or not they have clown shoes and have to take big steps or something. It's about the kind of life in which they live. That, that's, that, that's what it's talking about. What is, the, what is your way of life? How do you think? How do you feel? What do you love? How do you react in circumstances? You know, I always, uh, in, in premarital counseling, I'll, I'll tell people, you know, so... How do you know each other? How well do you know each other? One of the things I'll say is, 
where, where do you like to avoid on Friday night when you go out for a date because you know there's so much traffic there? And, and they'll tell me, and I'll say, okay, this Friday I want you to go there. Right in the middle of traffic, right in the middle of rush hour, where you've got to sit for 30 minutes at a light, and I want you to watch how the other person reacts. You know? I mean, that's, that's, now we're getting down to the, 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 the way in which we walk, biblically speaking, okay? That's, that's what it's about. And Paul says, as the one who has had faith in Christ, the message of the gospel, as a disciple of Jesus, your walk, how you live your life, should be worthy of Him. I mean, think about, let that blow your mind for a minute, what Paul is saying there. Let the weight of those words rest on you, not lightly. If Christ has purchased your life, you belong to Him and now your life should be lived worthy of Him. I think what Paul means is something that he says elsewhere to the Corinthians when he says, be imitators of me as I seek to imitate Christ. So in the way that Jesus showed love towards the Father, we should show love towards the Father. How Jesus loved people, how he knew the scriptures, how he prayed, how he showed mercy to sinners, and so much more. All of that should be seen in us. That's what gospel living is. And, and Paul goes even more specifically. He, he puts a finer point on it. He says, he says more than that, though, the specific way in which we live, walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord is that we walk in a manner that is fully pleasing to him. It is fully pleasing to him. Think about the aim of so much of our living today. It is aimed at pleasing ourselves. What's easiest for me? What's best for me in this situation? Regardless of anyone else on the planet, how is this going to make me happy? Part of that is our culture. Part of that, frankly, is sin. And Paul here says, uh, regardless of where it comes from, it needs to be blasted out of us like dynamite in a mine. Because the way we should be living as Christ's disciples is with this one aim. How can I please my Lord? How can I please my King? How can I please my Savior? So every decision. How do I, when I haven't got enough sleep, how do I, how do I talk to my kids in the morning? How do I talk to my spouse? When, when my boss is a complete and utter jerk, how do I respond to him? How do I, how do I treat him? When the lady in the drive-thru at lunch gets my, my order wrong and I'm late, I've only got a few minutes because of traffic, how am I going to respond to them? When, when, when someone sees me praying over that lunch and begins to ask me questions about why I pray, am I going to, to take the time with them? How am I, am I going to be uh, afraid of them? Am I going to be bold because I want to please Jesus? Uh, you just go through your day. Can you imagine what a difference it would make? If our first thought was, how can I please Christ in this situation? How can, I, how can I make him happy in my life? It reminds me very much of the story of Eric Little. I've mentioned him before. The Olympic athlete who originally could not compete because he refused to participate in the tryouts, which were on a Sunday. And therefore, he, he qualified for a race that he'd never run before and still attained the gold in the Olympics. I mean, you watch the footage of him running back then, uh, you know, and, and 
in my mind, at least, it's got to be a miracle that he even won anything. I mean, these days, you know, everything's, you know, everybody is streamlined, they're focused, they're hunched down, they're, they're pumping, and as, as Eric would enter the home stretch, he, he would come out of that kind of stance, and he, literally he would flip his head back and be flailing his arms wildly like some kind of wild Scottish geese. And yet he won. He won over and over and over again. He won. And the best thing about Eric Little was, he could have taken that gold medal, he could have taken that Olympic fame, and he could have rode it on for just about as long as he wanted in Scotland. Because he was a national hero. And instead he packed it all up and he said, I'm going to follow the footsteps of my family and go to China and be a missionary. But even before then, when he ran, his sister one time asked, why do you run? Well, why do you smile when you run? And here's what he said. He said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Now, why was that? How could he say that? I mean, isn't that a little arrogant? When I run, I feel God's pleasure? No, because here's the reality. Eric did not look to his life and say, well, I had great genes from my parents, therefore I run well. Or I had great, uh, great instruction from my coach, therefore I run well. No, he says, I have a great God who has blessed me, and therefore I run well. And so therefore, when he ran, he ran to the glory of God, and he knew because he was delighting in God in that moment, God was delighting in him. Oh, that we could live that way ourselves each and every moment, trusting, relying, glorifying God with the great aim of pleasing Christ in all that we do. Paul gives some, some specifics, though, helping us not just to have vague notions about what that means, but he tells us specifically what this kind of life would look like, what the kind of life that would be pleasing to Christ would look like, what the kind of life that would be lived in a manner worthy of the Lord would look like. He tells us four things. First, he says that it means we'll be bearing fruit in every good work. We'll be bearing fruit in every good work. This is exactly what we were saved for, to bear fruit in good works. Again, Paul's own letter, this time to the Ephesians, chapter 2, what does he say? He says, very famously for most of us, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is your, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. What's the next verse say though? For, for, why are we saved by grace? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul will say later in this chapter to the Colossians, before your conversion, your life was consumed with excelling and committing evil deeds. Now, he says, as Christians, though, your life should excel in good deeds. And that's true for every believer. Christian salvation does not come by what we do, but what we do shows whether or not we have received Christian salvation. Secondly, Paul says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord by increasing in the knowledge of God. By increasing in the knowledge of God. We see that in verse 10. Notice that Paul already prayed to the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God. And now he prays again that they would walk worthy of him. And that that would be reflected and that they would increase and be filled with his knowledge. Now, what, what is he going, what's going on here? Simply this. Paul is saying we should never be uh, satisfied with the status quo. We should never look at our life and say, okay, I'm, I'm good enough. I, I've reached a point where I don't need to grow anymore. No, he says, there is an, if, if, if knowing God's will results in a life pleasing to him, then he says, a life pleasing to him means you will be increasingly knowing his will. You see how that works? It's not a, it's not a vicious, endless cycle either because we, we are increasing in the knowledge, therefore we are increasing in godliness. Our, our life is on a trajectory of growth. That is what Paul is saying. 
More than that, though, thirdly, he says, the way we will be able to walk worthy of Christ, verse 11, is by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In my translation, verse 11 begins with the words, may you be. And we might imply from that that he's talking about a new petition, something else he is praying for. But grammatically, this is just the third descriptor of what the walk is supposed to look like. The, the, the gospel life, the manner of life worthy of Christ. And here basically you have one of the, 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 the texts, I think, the biblical truth that warrants St. Augustine's famous statement, what God requires, God provides. What God requires, God provides. What I mean by that is this. So far, you could be listening to all of this. You could be tracking with Paul, understanding exactly what he's saying. You could be agreeing that I'm interpreting it correctly. But you could just be crushed inside, laden with guilt, thinking, how in the world am I ever going to live that way? Here's where I am now, and Paul's talking about that. How, how do you bridge the gap? How can anybody do that? And Paul is clear here. You don't do it by yourself. Yes, you work at it, but ultimately it is God's Spirit that is empowering you through this process of change. He is the one that is making it possible for you to endure in this life, live in a manner worthy of Christ. We should not think that we do this by ourselves or that we're going to change overnight or that this will be simply a life of... of um, neglect and, and say, I can't do this, and I can't do that, some kind of life of drudgery and depression. No, Paul says, because God himself is empowering us, because his spirit has, been ta- has taken up residence in our life when we trusted in Christ. Therefore, we can endure, and we can endure patiently, waiting for growth to take place, even as it unfolds with joy for the journey set before us. Finally, he says, Christians who walk worthy of the Lord are to be characterized by thankfulness. Verse 12 says that we are to be giving thanks to God. Back on September 8th, 1820, that's 191 years ago this Thursday, the ship Lady Elgin began having trouble on Lake Michigan near the campus of Northwestern University to the point it became clear the ship was going to sink. Thankfully though, at that time the university had a trained life-saving team and it assisted the vessel in distress. They went out for rescue and in fact one student, Edward Spencer, personally saved 17 people himself, pulling them from near death in the frigid waters. And they were frigid. We all know what the weather can be like around here. And in fact, such were the conditions that Spencer permanently damaged his health by being in the water for as long as he was that day. When he died some years later, unable to go into his chosen vocation, ministry, it came to light that though he ultimately gave his life for all 17 people, Not one of those 17 people ever bothered to thank him for what he did. Not one, either that day or in the weeks or the months that years followed, ever thanked the man who literally pulled them from death out of a freezing lake. How much more, how much more should we be thankful when it comes to the salvation we have experienced through Christ? The one who fully and finally and immediately gave his life for us, that we might know God. When we are tempted to forget that, Paul reminds us exactly what Christ did. And we see that in verses 12 through 14. That brings us to our final point this morning. And that is this. Gospel living is only possible through the Son of God. Gospel living is possible through the Son of God. 
I've called these verses a prayer for gospel living because the whole thing, all of what Paul is praying for is rooted in and flows from the gospel as he points out in these last verses. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Remember what the Colossians were facing. The reason why Paul is right is because there are false teachers telling them, you need more. You need more than what you have to be right with God. Jesus wasn't everything. He was important, but he wasn't everything. They needed something more to keep the demons off their back and to have access before God in prayer. Now Paul writes to them and he says, look, I am thankful and you should be thankful because God has already qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Think about what that means. If God had qualified them, that means previously they were unqualified or disqualified. Previously the Colossians were unfit for such an inheritance because of their own lives and its sin and vices. They were excluded from the blessing that was to come to the people of God. It is this inheritance of the saints in light that is promised to God's people in the end. And it brings to mind all of the promises given to all the patriarchs of the Old Testament. But here is the distinction. This is not an earthly promise. It is an eternal, heavenly promise. All of the earthly promises of land and inheritance can be ravaged by sin and war and disease and famine and death. But this inheritance is the inheritance of God himself. Only God dwells in unapproachable light. Yet here he tells the Colossians, those who are previously disqualified because of their pagan thinking, disqualified because of their selfish, sinful rebellion, now I have qualified you not only to approach me, but to dwell with me in the glory of my unapproachable light. What was much unapproachable has now become approachable forever. How has he done that? Verse 13. He has delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word that Paul used in verse 13 that's translated dominion is the the regular Greek word for authority. I think what Paul is saying here is that these Colossian believers, before they came to faith like anybody, They were under the authority of Satan himself. They were in his kingdom, under his power and sway. Sam Storms explains it like this. Satan's dominion is characterized by darkness, intellectual, moral, and spiritual. No matter how high one's IQ, no matter how expensive one's financial portfolio, apart from Christ, you are under the authority of Satan and subject to the powers of darkness. No matter how musically gifted you may be, no matter how athletically endowed and honored, apart from Christ, you lie in the power of the evil one. But God has redeemed them. God has rescued them. He has transferred them from this domain of darkness, from this kingdom of sin, to the kingdom and domain of His beloved Son. One of forgiveness and life and righteousness. He did this through Christ in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. The reality is Christ redeemed us from our sin and it's just consequences by bearing God's wrath for us. The condemnation we deserved, the disqualification from from being with God, which was so much a part of our life, Christ bore the judgment for that upon himself as he hung and died on the cross in our place. 
This is why at the very heart of Christianity, we have this phrase, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He was a substitute. He died not for his own sins, but for, not for his own sins, but for ours. And now being raised back to life, Jesus has secured our redemption, our freedom from sin, and our forgiveness from God. That is the very essence of the gospel message. That is the, the, the heart and soul of why we are to live the way we are to live now as God's people. And in light of these verses, how can we not spend all of eternity showing our gratitude and thanks to God for that? Friends and loved ones, if we want to see ourselves grow spiritually, if we want to see other Christians in this church and around the world grow spiritually, then we will begin regularly praying the kind of prayers that Paul prayed. We will pray to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order that we will be able to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, even in a manner that is pleasing to Him in every way. We will pray that our lives will bear fruit in every good work, and increase the knowledge of God even as we are strengthened with His power for all endurance and patience with joy, even as we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us, even us, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We will be thankful because He has done all of this through the offering of His Son. In Him, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Father, we are so thankful for the mighty work you have done for us in Christ. We ask now that we would be mindful of that, not just in thanksgiving, but Father, in our prayers, that the reality of the gospel would so strike us that we cannot help but live gospel lives. Help us not only to desire that, but help us to regularly, consistently pray toward that end. It's in Jesus' name we ask it.